You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 562, Mick Jagger, 60 years as a Rolling Stone, farewell to Steve Wright in the afternoon, and the trauma of buying concert tickets. That's all coming up after Natalie Williams and this girl.
wonderful summary song for 15 years still to this day she's had a residency at ronnie scott's in london this though is a track from her album secret garden from 2006 natalie williams and this girl good choice i really like that i think that's a that's a that's a cracker thank you for joining us for parish council Mm. episode 562 I'm Terence Stackham and, well, it's the question everyone's been asking for the last few days. Let's get the official answer. Is she running to be the new leader of the Conservative Party? <laughs> Let's ask Juliet Harris. Do you know, I always have that brief moment of dread whenever you start my <laughs> intro by saying it's the question everyone's been asking. Oh, God. Anyway, um, do you know? I, I I feel that although I could bring a lot to the role, yeah. um, I uh, yeah, it, it's uh, well, I, I sense that me and the modern Conservative Party are are not a pair. So um, oh, so see. unfortunately, oh. I will I will have to allow them to have their their silly culture war arguments amongst themselves for a little while longer. Hello, everyone. Last last Sunday, I had a delayed birthday lunch in Knightsbridge, mm. and. Afterwards, we went for a stroll around the Serpentine in Hyde Park, and this coincided with thousands of people converging on the north of the park to see the Rolling Stones. Mm. And it was quite striking that as well as the thousands paying a fortune to see the band from inside the giant green steel fence... There were loads of people who had turned up with blankets and picnics simply to be able to listen to the band Mm. from outside the fence. Absolutely loads of people. Mm. Even after 60 years, their popularity is not in doubt. To coincide with this 60 years, the BBC is running My Life as a Rolling Stone, a four-part series looking individually at Keith Richards, Ronnie Wood, Charlie Watts, and in this first episode, Mick Jagger. And it started with something of a positive promise. Jagger said, all previous Stones documentaries, and I quote, just repeat the same mythologies. People want to put things in boxes, end of quote. He wanted to stress that this series would be different with no cliches. Do you think they succeeded in that, Jules? Not a set, not a tremendously, oh. I must say. Although I did enjoy watching the program, so mm. so it's not that I didn't enjoy the program. It's just that I don't think it was incredibly different to any of mm. you know to any of the other sort of programs that you watch about those things. Um, I think when we've when we've reviewed things recently on the podcast, we've said how refreshing and nice it is when a lot of the stuff that we've watched either has no narration at all, mm. or it doesn't have endless talking heads and that sort of thing. In this was similar, I think, in style to the well, and certainly in terms of having talking heads that you heard but didn't see, it was similar to the Glastonbury thing that we watched the other week. Um, this was more prosaic, I think, than that. That was particularly good because it didn't really take a chronological step, it did a sort of an A to Z thing, so we went forward and backward through time, and I thought that was brilliant. Um, I thought this was fine. I found it enjoyable enough. It was the sort of thing that I passed the time. I thought Mick Jagger was very interesting. I thought he came across as quite a nice man, actually. And the thing that I quite like about Mick Jagger is that I don't get the impression he takes himself too seriously. And actually, I quite like that. I think that's, you know, he he seems like quite good fun. It was There was quite an entertaining sort of moment where they were contrasting. They were talking about the, the 1967 sort of drugs bust and mm. how that was all, you know, how difficult that was. But I very much enjoyed, you know, the contrast between they were deliberately flicking line to line between Keith Richards being very bitter about it <laughs> and Mick Jagger being very sort of, you know, oh, weren't we bad? Ha ha ha. Just sort of, you know, mocking himself for it, really. And it was quite... No, I thought that was quite fun. Um, 
I I thought it was I, I'm interested to watch where well, I am interested in where well, it is a bit different. I'm interested to watch the other three to mm. see if to see what their to compare their recollections, if you see what I mean, and to mm. compare if it's if it's in a similar format. There's that interesting idea. It reminds me of that Flaming Lips album. I think it's called Zurika, which in their particularly mad period, it was designed that you had four. Di- the album was produced. The whole album was on four different tapes because there was a different track on each tape. And you had to get four tape recorders and press play at the same moment, four oh, of God. you, to listen to the album. I'd quite like to do that with this Rolling Stones documentary, <laughs> just to see if they're Excellent. all the same or not in terms of their recollections. It was what was interesting was that it seemed to bust the myth a that the singer in the band is rather feckless because it's very obvious that Mick Jagger is their sort of business manager really isn't isn't yeah. he he's their sort of leader he's the fly one that keeps everyone on track which I think they all seem to admire really rather that rather, was an interesting yeah, aspect of it wasn't, wasn't it? it that was that was the biggest learn I think we got from it the other big learn was as well as busting the myth that the singer is you know the sort of the frontman and there's always a, a clever guitarist or something behind the scenes the fact that the two main so, that this main songwriting pair have to be in each pocket those pockets the other all the time and they either have to be like best friends or they have to be at each other's throats. <laughs> they seem to be very much in between. They seem to have a lot of time for each other, but they didn't. You didn't strike them. As, they didn't strike me as being particularly close or particularly sort of, you know, oh, they're wonderful, blah 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 blah. They just seemed to have a working relationship, and that that seemed to be sort of where it was. And that was that was. I found that really interesting, actually. So the usual some of the footage that was used was quite interesting i loved hearing one of their first demos i'd never heard that before i thought that was really interesting and it was interesting that the sort of the the way they had to try and make the transition from blues covers band to pop originals that was quite interesting although i would have liked to have heard more about the music i think although i sense that this was not that was not the purpose of this documentary, but it was a little bit. Yeah, but how did you write all these songs, Mick? I really mm. maybe we'll hear more about that from Keith Richards. I don't know, but um, I yeah, I, I did enjoy this. I thought it had limitations. It didn't quite live up to the way that it was sort of hysterically mm. built. But I thought it was interesting enough. We learned some things. It was interesting to spend some time in the company of Mick Jagger, who seemed pleasant, and it was. I enjoyed the sort of him him being honest about the fact that his look was very and his stage style was very much a calculation actually and that he rehearsed those moves at home and when he they went on ready steady go he would be thinking about the camera angles and what would look good from each camera angle i thought that was really fascinating actually and quite refreshing that rather than just kind of pretending that everything is sort of you know just natural man and that all turns out to be artifice he was like no i did put thought into this and i did think what would be good and i i quite liked that so yeah not not perfect this by any means but i did enjoy watching it and if you are interested in music and the rolling stones it is an easy and and, and enjoyable watch um you used an excellent word there limitations and i'm Mm. gonna hang my hat on the peg of limitations because i'll say this right up front i i found my life as a rolling stone rather dull and Mm. dare i say it boring of course it may that may be an age thing because you know i remembered so much of it yes uh, from i was around at the time there wasn't anything new for me in this i found sienna miller seemed a peculiar choice as narrator and the script that she was given had some odd lines and i picked Mm. up one um they've written the playbook for rock and roll she told us i mean did they really yeah exactly 
maybe the Beatles, you know, the kinks with, you know, you really got me and the, the sort of riffs and so on and the who, yeah, I know there's the beach boys. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that they wrote the playbook for rock and roll. Anyway, there was, an, the, 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 yes, the talking heads thing was interesting. There's an enormous number of talking heads, but luckily, as you say, they weren't shown on screen. They were disembodied, disembodied voiceovers. The, the ones, the people who were close to the stones, they were interesting, but always in these situations, it, it rather bewilders me when you get people wildly irrelevant like um, Cheryl Crow and Lulu. Uh, and you think, well, what have they got to do with the Rolling Stones? And Lulu said, uh, bless her, I like Lulu, but she said rather ludicrously that the streets of the UK would be empty mm. on a Friday night when the nation all rushed home to watch Ready, Steady, Go, which is just simply daft. I mean, that's mm. just uh, that didn't happen. Um, yeah, Keith Richards told us that Mick Jagger is, again, I quote, a really honourable man, which may come as a surprise to the, the many women he's had relationships mm. with over the decades. But um, no, one of the things I found really quite, and it's obvious really when you think about it, but I think it's very telling, that the, the most emphasis was put on the years 1967 to 72, um, with the last 50 years kind of left hanging. We went and this is what I mean about how I found it a bit dull uh, mm. and boring, because lots of things we already know, the Redlands bust, uh, the Who Breaks a Butterfly on the Wheel editorial from Jacob mm. Rees-Mogg's dad. Uh, <laughs> yes, isn't yeah. it funny how things move in cycles? It's strange, isn't it? Grosvenor Square, Brian Jones, the the uh, in the Hyde Park, and the butterflies choking in the cardboard box, Altamont, Tax Exile, Bianca. Um, these if you know about the stones then all of that footage and all of that information was really very well covered previously so i think that this was probably aimed at younger viewers and 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 people who weren't particularly aficionados of the stones or you know just weren't weren't around at, at the time um I mean, the Rolling Stones are hugely popular. and I mean, now as a heritage band with no interest in new recordings at all. And people love to go and see and hear the hits in a, a live environment. So mm. I just think this documentary may appeal to newer Stones fans, but there wasn't anything new in this for people like me. Fair enough. My Life as a Rolling Stone is currently on the BBC iPlayer and it's free. Hooray, hurrah. Coming right up. For BBC Radio 2 listeners, the end of an era. It's farewell to Steve Wright in the afternoon. That's next, after Jurassic 5. Check it out now. I work the pen to make the ink transform on any particular surface the pen lands on. I care if it's hands on. What's the beef? The coolie high code chiefs. High post technique. I drape off poetic landscapes and shapes. Illustrate the paper space off the pens that paint. Then design what happened. National Geographic, the magic with Taylor May status and plus flavor that's automatic. Uh. We're not falling. We'll take it back to the days of yes, Charlotte. We're holding on to what's golden. No, on the stage, I reach and I'm rolling. We're not falling, a shot calling. We'll take it back to the days of yes, Charlotte. We're holding on to what's golden. No, on the stage, I reach and I'm rolling. Melancholy, mundane, sauteed, the hot flame. Big rings, fat chains, they all quest for the same. No name, huge fame, strictly new to the 
the thing. We stay true to the game and never bring it to shame. We tight like dreadlocks or red fox and ripple. We pass participles and smash the artists in you. The saga continues. This I won't get into because there ain't enough bars to hold the drama that we've been through. Yo, we still the same with the little fame. A little change in the household name, but ain't too much change. We in the game, yo, but not to be vain. I refrain from salt grains to season up my name. We entertain for a mutual game from close range. Steady aim, my drum at your head to hit the brain. I'm labor ready, roll scholar for the dollar. Work for mines, pay me by the hour. Without falling, we take it back to the days of yes, Charlie. We're holding on to what's golden. No, 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 Monster, the word enhancer, sycophony monsters controlling the dance floor. I'm in them dark places, catch you when you stark naked. Your heart races as we poke you for your chart spaces. The taunt tastes me bringing these hot styles through. Some of you bum a few cheers from shock value. Word power can plow through acres of cornfields. Paragraphs cut like warm steel, perform ill. We're not falling, we take it back to the days of yes, Charlotte. We're holding on to what's going on. On the stage, I read it up. Shot calling, we take it back to the days of yes, Charlie. We holding on to what's golden. quite like sort of slightly sort of less aggressive hip hop, I yes. would say. I quite like this sort of this isn't Daisy Age era hip hop, but the Daisy Age era hip hop and stuff like Dead of Soul, I've always very much enjoyed because it's a bit more mellow and a bit yes. more fun. And I enjoy the sort of use of samples from, from different places. And this is exactly my sort of thing. I wasn't hugely familiar with this. I like Jurassic Five very much. Uh, although having said that, interestingly, the sample on here, I say old classic sort of nice samples. This does actually sample po- Public Enemy's Prophets of Rage. So it does sample hip hop itself. <laughs> but also look here by Clive Hicks and um, this is from the album Power in Numbers which was released in 2002 so incredible to think this song is 20 years old I think it sounds pretty fresh really uh, that's What's Golden by Jurassic 5 I mean Jodie I'd kind of forgotten about Jurassic 5 mm. I have to confess I knew they split up but uh, apparently been back together again since 2013 mm. I did not um, know that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's uh, good to hear it. Um, mm. And I wasn't familiar with that track uh, at all, I must say. Mm. Uh, at all. Um, it must have been around um, 1977 that my local commercial radio station, Radio 210 for Berkshire, brought together two young presenters, Mike Reed and Steve Wright, possibly mm. because being able to call a show the Reed and Wright show uh, was too big <laughs> yes, an opportunity perfect, to miss. Yes. Uh, but in an era when commercial radio was still finding its feet in the UK and before they all sounded the same as they do now, 210 had a kind of cavalier, almost piratical quality. And then that spirit, the read and write show was really, really, it was very good. And it was mm. soon obvious that both, given the given the breaks, uh, could go on to bigger things. And so that happened after the almost 
uh, obligatory stint at Radio Luxembourg, mm. Steve Wright was taken on by the BBC. And from 1981, Steve Wright in the afternoon was underway on Radio One. And I think it is important to remember that his show was groundbreaking, um, heavily influenced by American and particularly New York radio. This yes. was this was all new to the UK and it was a great listen. And he put an incredible amount of work into the show. He would fly to New York for the weekend doing the Monday to mm. Friday show. Immediately after it finished on Friday, he would fly to New York for the weekend just to listen to and record New York radio to get new ideas for his afternoon show on radio. I mean, that is incredible, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. And I mean, he did. And I'm told still does spend hours every day working on his show now on BBC Radio 2, where he's been since 1996. Mm. So in all, we've had Steve Wright in the afternoon on BBC National Radio for 41 years. In the last week, it's been announced that Steve Wright in the afternoon will end in a few weeks. The end of a radio era, but the right decision, Jules? I suspect probably so, yes, actually. And I have to say all credit to Steve Wright, who said on on air um, at the beginning of this year, my friend and boss, Helen Thomas, head of Radio 2, said she wanted to do something different in the afternoon. So I've been doing this programme for 24 years on radio at Radio 2. And so how can I possibly complain? The support and creative freedom I've been, that I'm given is fantastic at Radio 2. And really, I can't hog the slot forever. So let's give somebody else a go. I wish lots other, of other people could be as gracious and, and, and pleasant as that, frankly. I admire him for that. My view is that it probably is time to freshen up the slot because... I'm so since working at home, I've been able to sort of occasionally listen to the radio in the in the middle of the day a bit more often than I otherwise would do. I mean, Steve Wright is always the show as it is now is very much an acquired taste. It's it is the zoo format, which I can't believe the zoo format has endured on the otherwise reasonably sort of mainstream and calm radio too for so long, really. But one thing I have been struck by when sort of popping in to listen is that I don't often listen to Steve Wright's afternoon show very, you know, very often, actually. So so there can be months between me listening to it and it's the same. It doesn't change. <laughs> and and no, I think the hasn't. problem is, is that is that I'm not saying that he's got lazy at all. And, and you know, to some extent, why mess with a winning formula? Millions of people mm. like it and enjoy it. But equally, it is a little bit. I do wonder if it had got stuck in a bit of a rut, if it had not, you know, for someone that, as you say, has been such a radio innovator and, you know, goes to such lengths to work on the show. It doesn't seem to change very much. And and I know that radio formats are such that you have features. But if I only listen, if I've listened six times in the last five years and it's been pretty much the same every time, I'm not sure that really says very much. So I, I, like you say, I think he's had an enormous impact on radio broadcasting generally. He's he's a funny one in that you think you think listening to the show, the sort of the hail of the show is is sort of that's now famous, I think, for you know people saying, "Hey, Steve, love the show." But um, I get the impression that that there is that is tongue in cheek as well, actually. So so for all that that I mean, I remember listening to sit the, the serious jocking feature that is takes place. I think on Fridays, which is still the strangest thing I've ever heard on the radio. What is it, Jules? I have to I, I'm ask you so, in so sincerity, this, what is it? So it's this weird sort of um, I it, like all of Steve Wright's features. I can never <laughs> quite work out if it is serious or not, or in on the joke or not. Yeah. Um, it's it's the it's forty five minutes of um, of you know of just what seems to be 
kind of um non-stop kind of oh. weird sort of you know weird mixes and weird sort of music coming in and out and it's it's mm. i can't even begin to explain it i can't decide if it is madly awful or madly brilliant <laughs> it's such right. a strange sort of thing and they now occasionally get guests in to play dance tunes and stuff and it's really mm. sort of you wouldn't expect a continuous mix to be sort of it, on a radio show on radio two in the afternoon of all things but it's um it's you know i i, I admire steve right hugely what he does is not always when i say to my taste it's sometimes a bit much for me terence is what i would probably mm. describe three hours of sort of the bombardment of steve Wright. having said that you know he's been incredibly popular for a very long time i think it probably is time to to as he put it himself so brilliantly to you know give someone else a go in the slot but he, I have to say, I hate Steve Wright's Sunday love songs on Sunday mornings because I hate love songs. So that was mm. never, ever going to appeal to me. But I wish him well with the best of his projects at, at, at Radio 2. I'm sure that there will always be a space for Steve Wright somewhere and probably on Radio 2, actually, I sense. And you don't get the impression there's this sort of... Um, there's this. I don't think there'll be any smashy and nicey style bitterness when he leaves. I no, think so. No. So you know, I, I I I admire the way that he's handled himself during this. I think that is a that lots of people could learn a lot from that. I think. And although I think it's probably time for a refresh, he's had a pretty good run, hasn't he? Really. I agree with you. I think he seems like a very a, a very likable yes he uh, does. fellow. Radio One and Radio Two are often quite ruthless when it's felt that a presenter's time is up. I mean, yes. going way back to 1995 and Trevor Dan and Matthew Bannister's yes. mass axings of uh, DLT and whoever. Um, uh, Steve Wright gave, uh, I, you, you were saying about the, the, the um, sweet way he dealt with it. He gave an immediate interview to TV on the steps at Radio 1 on the day mm. it emerged the show was ending. And he was very noble and level-headed. Yes. And that was, again, to his credit... Um, after 41 years, it's possibly sensible to go when you're still more or less at the top. Often yes. at the BBC, it's not so much the actual listening figures they look at in isolation, but the audience appreciation index yes. um, or the amount of engagement listeners have. Um, this le- this only leaves Ken Bruce in the mid-morning as the mm. only really old-school presenter on daytime radio, too. Yes. He's only 71, but mm. he's been, been at, uh, there, well, it seems young to me, but he's been there at Radio <laughs> 2 uh, since the mid-1980s, again, hugely mm. popular. But do you think there's any element of ageism about all this? And if so, is Ken Bruce next for the for the, for the exit, perhaps? I'm not sure there is, actually. I mean, again, I'm a younger person, so maybe I'm just being naive here. But um, I I don't think there is. I, I think that, that... But if you say is there ageism... If Steve, so remind me how old Steve Wright is. 67, did you say? 67 he is, yeah. Yeah. But then there isn't necessarily ageism, I think, in that when he got that job, he was already 43. So so I think if you're on a 24, which in some places might be seen as quite old for, for, for showbiz. So I think in terms of whether or not it's it's ageist, I think it's more the, the relevance here is more the fact that the, the same show has been done for 24 years rather than necessarily as an older person doing it. And and the same thing happens on Radio One. You know, it's it's people do a show for a few years and then they then they get moved on. I I don't find it as ageist. The interesting thing about Ken Bruce. The what there is, I can tell you why Ken Bruce will continue in that slot until he doesn't <laughs> right. want to anymore. In one single word, 
pop master. Uh, that is the thing that people listen. I would love to see the figures for that show during the show and during pop master. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have to say that I listen to the pop master podcast. Um, so yeah, and don't listen to the Cambridge show. I, I find Ken Bruce quite irritating as a broadcaster, <laughs> I must admit. I absolutely respect him and respect the fact that he's... Ke- and actually, I think we've said on the show, previ- on the on the podcast here previously about his show, that I grew to like him more during lockdown, actually, ah. because he was very... When people would ring in and sort of, you know, he would ask them a bit about, you know, oh, where you are, what are you doing, what, what are you doing for work and stuff. And he was very kind to people. I was really mm. struck by how he would have conversations with the contestants and, and would really care, I think. And mm. I really, I really liked him for that. Is it time for him to start the show? Who knows? There will be national riots if they get rid of Popmaster. That, that slot will live on forever, I sense. And people, <laughs> and funnily enough, Scott Mills is replacing uh, Steve Wright in the afternoon slot. The absolute outcry that go that happens when Ken Bruce is off and Scott Mills sits in for him and does Popmaster. Oh, all of my cousin friends really? they're so cross, Terence. They're like, oh. oh, he's 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 not very good. He doesn't leave enough time. He doesn't he doesn't build the tension. It's really people get really sort of annoyed about it. So hopefully. Popmaster will not move to the afternoon show because I sense there'll be an insurrection if it does. Yes, I mean, BBC Radio has always, since the inception of Radio 1, 2, 3, 4 in 1967, always been obsessed with the age ranges of people listening mm. to the specific stations. And, and that continues to this day. And I think they are wholly wrong to obsess on this. And like you, I hope uh, Ken Bruce survives with his pop master intact. Absolutely, yes. Do not mess with the nation's favourite. Coming right up, the history of screaming fans and the trauma of getting a ticket in the digital age. That's next after Lenny Kravitz. There comes a time to be free of the heart. I want to be ready, ready to start on a love journey.
many people will remember him from a photograph that went viral in 2012 when he was pictured wearing the largest scarf ever created uh, that, that that went viral. It was like an enormous blanket. Mm. Oh, yes, I remember around. this. Yes. And then I, I had a picture um, of me in a very large scarf I bought, not realising how large it was. And I got a lot of Lenny Kravitz comparisons <laughs> online. I'll try and find it. He continues to be a highly successful artist. His albums continue to sell uh, well all around the world. And I like him immensely. As a single, this track reached number 80 on Billboard and number 20 in the UK. Mm. Lovely soulful song from 1993, Lenny Kravitz and Heaven Help. I had no um, I had no recollection of this. I, yeah. I, I didn't remember this at all. And I quite enjoyed that. I thought it was very good. It's a lovely song. Um, I remember one of my cousins, about 10 years older than me, telling me me way back in the 60s, bearing in mind I was way too young to go to this myself, that she had gone to see the Beatles at Hammersmith Odeon. And oh, it wow, was a yes. Christmas show. I think it was 65. Mm. Um, and that she didn't hear more than a few notes and mm. a smattering of vocals due to all the girls screaming. And I remember she said it was like an aeroplane landing in her ears. I very mm. much always remember her saying that to me when I was a little boy. Um, but by the way, I looked up her, uh, um, earlier who was on the bill, the Christmas show with the Beatles, the Yardbirds, Elkie Brooks, second on the bill, Freddie and the Dreamers. Wow, um, that's quite that's quite a varied lineup, isn't it? The Yardbirds and Elkie Brooks is quite out it, there, isn't, isn't it? it really? just, uh, tickets from seven and six to a pound. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, who was the disc jockey, the compare? We'll just sketch over. Yes, let's that. not let's not dwell. No, um, but anyway, back to the screaming. If the Beatles were just starting now, it would be interesting to see how social media would react. Um, mm, wouldn't of course, it? I, that's I, a great point. Yeah, yeah, I understand that people, young people in particular, need an outlet for their emotions. But I think that in 2022, rather than 1965, I'm just thinking, Jules. I think there'd be a, a lot of conflict if we had hysterical screaming in the modern era. Yeah, it's such a strange phenomenon. But having said that, you say you say if we had screaming in the modern era, does it still go on? I believe Harry so. Styles so, and so yes, so I'm going to tell you about a, a girl. So reading this article by Caitlin Tiffany in The Guardian. Um, right. This girl, on the morning of the 25th of August 2014, a 16-year-old girl arrived at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in a baffling condition. She was short of breath but had no chest pain. She had no history of any lung condition and no abnormal sounds in her breathing. But when the emergency doctor on duty pressed on her neck and chest he heard noises like rice crispies uh, crackling in a bowl of milk spaces behind her throat around her heart and between her lungs and chest and, and chest wall were studded with pockets of air an x-ray confirmed her lungs were very slightly collapsed all very odd the doctors were confused until she said that she'd been screaming for hours the night before at the dallas stop of one directions where we are tour oh the my exertion goodness. They, hypo- they hypothesized and it forced to open a small hole in her respiratory oh tract. Um, it was described. Um, so she was she was fine. She was given extra oxygen, kept overnight. She uh, went home. 
didn't need any follow-up tr- treatment. It healed itself as these things often do. But three I years later, I was joking about Harry Styles, but obviously, gen- genuinely so story. apparently so. The Journal of Emergency Medicine three years later published this sort of incident. The lead physician that wrote that such a case had yet to be described in the medical literature. They were familiar with military pilots, scuba divers, weightlifters straining their respiratory tract, but this seemed to be the first evidence that for- what's described as forceful screaming during pop concerts, almost Wikipedia-esque in its straight yeah. back there, could have the same physical joke, you know, same physical sort of a toll. And I say that, it's used as a bit of a joke about the screaming teenage girls and things like that. It's such an interesting phenomenon, and it's just, and it's kind of formed this sort of general, um, general kind of impression that being a fan is sort of associated with people who can't control their emotions, if you see what I mean. And that is, there's a difference between being someone that appreciates an artist and someone that is a quote unquote fan. Um, it's interesting here that, and I think we've spoken about this previously on the podcast, that when it comes to the context of Screaming and the Beatles, most of the writing about Be- the Beatles in sort of mainstream American publications particularly have been done by established white male journalists. So we have a quite a male perception of female appreciation of the, Be- of the Beatles. And actually there have been some interesting books published in the last couple of years that sort of try and have more female perspectives on, on women in the Beatles. And I think we've talked about them on the podcast previously. Um I I find it really quite strange because I suppose um, I don't know if it's just the fact that that I'm gay. Maybe that meant I had a different experience growing up. Mm. But I've never had that teenage girl hysteria where I've wanted to go and scream at things. Mm. Having said that, it's an expression, I suppose, of how you're feeling about something. And I think they're particularly associated with younger people because it's a way of making sense of a lot of confusing things that are going on in your life at that time I think so so it's certainly an interesting phenomenon and I have to be honest Terence the sort of bands I go to see are not are not really screamy bands (laughs) having said that I was recounting a tale yesterday about a woman I know I I went I'm usually for me city I went out of an evening last night to a bar and drank and with with people and and people turned up and a woman turned up who I hadn't seen in years um, for about three years. It is almost exactly, we said, three years. Last time I'd seen her, she and, and I and our mutual friend, who's my bandmate, had been to see Stereolab play a sort of re- reunion show, first time in some years, mm. in Brighton. And they're touring again uh, soon, I think. So so I'm looking forward to seeing them again. But the lead singer is Letitia Sadier. And this friend that we were with, this, this woman we were with, my bandmate and I were laughing afterwards because, as my bandmate put it, this 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 other woman, she'd always known her to be completely heterosexual. She'd only ever had relationships with men. She was in a very much that sort of way. And Letitia Sadier came on. And our friend was like, well, she screamed. <laughs> she was like, really? So, oh, my God, Letitia. And, and it was really, we were really, not in a, a, a mean way, but we were really amused by it. So perhaps, you know, perhaps emotion Perhaps the way that we express emotion when we go to see live music, there is this strange alchemy that does things to us that that yeah. that, 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 that that we wouldn't other and the behaving ways we otherwise wouldn't behave. This woman is a very reasonable and calm woman. You know, it's 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 very entertaining and very strange. Yeah, that's a, a, a good point. Probably 
if um, they had interviewed a lot of the people, girl, young girls mainly screaming at the Beatles or the Stones in 1964, uh, a week later, many of them would probably have been quite sort of um, sort of normal, I was going to say, just like, uh, you know, quiet in their emotions. And it's just something overwhelms you. As you say. Um, I think the lovely word you use there, alchemy, I think mm. that there's something um, almost mystical about yes. the, 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 the air that gets taken over of people when they're. And I wonder, would do people scream on their own? I don't think they do, do they? I think you have to be in a crowd. I mean, uh, yes, maybe so. Not that anybody else screamed along with our friend, but. But yes, I agree. Maybe there's just and that's why, interestingly, and again, apologies if I mentioned this on the pod recently, but it's it's interesting that almost every sort of larger scale gig I've been to and by larger scale, for me, large scale is like 1,500 people. Mm. That's large scale for me, not Hyde Park. But and, and friends have commented on this as well. Whenever we've been to gigs recently, particularly slightly more heritage acts, the reception has been overwhelmingly positive like people are almost euphoric to be able to experience live music again I talked about the golf rap gig where we went and it was absolutely silence during songs for the first half an hour a, a week or two after that the friend that I went with and, and her partner went to see Sparks at the same venue the Dead mm. of War Pavilion and and she she was sort of recounting this afterwards and they went because he was a big fan and she sort of liked them and was happy to go but you know wasn't wasn't so so into them and she said that you know they were sort of everyone was chanting Ron Miles name and people were sort of like absolutely cock a hoop to see them and she said it was one of the best gigs she'd ever seen not particularly because she was a big fan of Sparks but because the atmosphere was so euphoric and mm. and so maybe this is something we've all very much missed Yes, maybe there is a tie-in with uh, 63, 64 Beatles and Stone Screaming because it's a release, isn't it? Absolutely. A a release from post-war British greyness and Mm. um, rationing and uh, all of that sort of thing. Suddenly uh, everything was in colour and maybe after lockdown and uh, COVID and so on, it's Mm. a very similar feeling for particularly younger people that that was like a dark period and here's a shaft of light and they just get euphoric about it. Yeah, And there's there's a comparison, of course, post-COVID, isn't there really, or at least Mm. post-lockdowns anyway? Of course, to be able to scream and shout at a gig, you first need to acquire the tickets. And well, yes. the days of sending a postal order are long gone. And the days that my, my then girlfriend and I turning up at Hammersmith Odeon in 73 to buy tickets for the David Bowie Ziggy Stardust uh, gig that night. That also would now be impossible just turning mm. up on the day. All ticket buying now is some form of Internet lottery to get tickets for Adele, the Stones, yes. or Glastonbury, you have to log on the very second they become live on the internet and cross your fingers or be prepared to maybe 10 times face value of the ticket in the secondary market. Mm-hmm. But I suppose, Jules, I, I was thinking about this during the week, I suppose this internet lottery is the only democratic way. <laughs> yes, I agree, particularly when you've got these kind of mass urgency for people to buy tickets. And I think this goes back to the thing previously that, you know, people having not been in, you know, not been in these kind of environments for a couple of years. Now, there seems to be 
people I think have perhaps realised there's an even greater need to make these sort of memories, isn't there, if we haven't done these yes. things for the last couple of years. So maybe that's... that's I, mean, I think people want to experience things yes. rather than have things. Yes, absolutely, which is, you know, a great attitude, and I really I really agree with that. But even... even so, so again, tracking back to my point earlier, I go to smaller scale things, and... Even then, you find yourself. I'm going to see a band that I very much like that I've mentioned on the podcast before, the Delgados, next January in Brighton. They've reformed after I, th- I think I worked it out as being 18 years. I think um, yeah. so. So very excited about that. And I found myself going on the website to buy tickets at one minute past ten when they were when they were sort of produced because. I don't want to say it's FOMO, but it seems like that the live music seems to have moved to this thing where if you don't get a ticket very quickly for anything, it seems to be selling out. I don't know if this is a temporary phenomenon or if this is going to be just how things are now. I don't know if there'll be a fading of this. I mean, who knows what the future will bring? We can't possibly begin to speculate regarding COVID and, and the other pandemic outbreaks as well. It's, it, you know, there's more. We might be moving into this era now, but um yeah, it's it is really sort of um I think if there is for things like that, I think a lottery is fair because otherwise you get into this situation and it speaks to sort of privilege really. If you work in an office job, you're gonna be able to sort of hop on to a laptop at, at ten what o'clock, aren't you? And go on what to do go on to do these things. But if you're working in a supermarket, mm. who's to say I mean we talked previously about the unfortunate Adele Las Vegas sort of spectacle of having to, having to do that last minute and how there were lots of stories from people who, from what I could gather, seemed to be from pretty, I suppose, quote unquote, ordinary backgrounds for whom that was their holiday that year, going to see Adele in Las Vegas. That was what they were going to do. Uh, so I don't think it's fair to say with these things that, you know, that's uh, it's not necessarily the case that people working in certain jobs can't afford it they you know they will structure their lives so that they can afford it they just might not have the opportunity to to get on you know to get on and, and and buy tickets at a particular moment on a particular day so actually i do think that it is fair and actually the again to track back to something i was saying earlier stereo lab have, so Stereo Lab have been redu- producing compilations recently, the Switched On series, and they produce a certain amount of limited edition sort of it, versions of the vinyl. And by limited, I mean like 250. So like that is really quite limited. Mm. Even for a band that are not massive, it's still really quite limited. And they have a, a mailing list that they send out every so often. And they said on the mailing list recently, look, we, um, we have, people have fed back to us that, it's almost impossible to get on to buy one of these these records, these limited edition records. And this, the same thing happened when, when PJ Harvey did her, her signs campaign last year. And actually, we accept that not everybody can get to a computer at a certain time and that it has become, oh, if you don't get to the computer at a certain time, you miss out. So mm. we are we're having a lottery. So if you want if you're interested in buying one of these click on this email and send your email address and then we will offer the first hundred and two, the first 250 people that we draw out the chance to buy this and if they don't want to buy this then we'll you know we'll eventually end up on the website but i think that's such a democratic way of doing it that if there is enormous demand i do think that is the fairest way of taking into account that 
people have different life circumstances and that actually yes I think it is privilege I think you can use the word privilege if I'm sat on my laptop and I can just think oh it's 10 o'clock now I've set an alarm I'll just jump on and buy these tickets and then carry on with my work so actually I think it is democratic and if we have got this insane demand I think that's the most decent way of doing it actually. Julia, rather shamefully, I had never con- considered that, and you're spot on. Is it, um, but it's, it's interesting, it isn't is. it? But I, but I caught myself the other day buying tickets, thinking, God, isn't it good I can do this? Because yes. I've got a laptop. What, what if I was driving Absolutely. a taxi or like you know doing whatever? So if we if we had say I don't know uh, let's say Glastonbury tickets or the Stones or whoever, you, you're absolutely right. If there was a system where it was said that between let's say the 10th of July and the 17th of July, you have to register your interest mm. and with email address, whatever. And then on the 18th of July, uh, a computer system just randomly picks the first, whatever, 75,000 mm. people um, at random. Um, so that you could have applied on the 10th at the minute that it opens or the you know, three minutes before the window closes. Then that's even fairer still, isn't it? Because then you've got, say, a week to find a time to uh, register to want to yeah, have exactly. these tickets and then it's just picked you know although it's software it's like picking a a name out of a hat until you reach the the number so that's that would be much fairer i suppose one's view on the fairness of the system may be swayed by whether you succeed or not in obtaining the tickets i must again rather shamefacedly say when i amazingly got tickets for kate bush's first night at hammersmith in 2014 i didn't really reflect on the fairness of the system but you've really a genuine lottery is 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 okay but uh, and you've given me food for thought there but Oh, well, I'm glad I, I'm glad to have done that. <laughs> I have a real issue with the number of tickets that turn up on the secondary or oh, tout yes, market yes. almost straight away. There's something that Great doesn't point, add yeah. up about that and it needs to be a, a, a addressed. But of course, um, that would be very low down on any government's list of priorities, I suppose. Yes, I suspect so. But that is that's interesting, though. And mm. again, I hadn't thought of that. And I wonder if a lottery system would change that or not i don't know mm. maybe, maybe it might maybe it might unwittingly inflate that i don't know maybe mm. maybe if it is genuine chance if you get a ticket or not that will make people even more desperate to go ahead and 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 pay money through these sites i don't know yeah. thanks very much for being with us this week i echo terence's sentiments as always um it's very understandable that fans would wish to scream in appreciation at Juliet's radio show. <laughs> really not true, but thank you. And, and of course, you don't even need to buy a ticket, Jules, to um, be, be part of it. No, nor do you have to enter an elaborate lottery or anything <laughs> like that. All you need to do is go to noiseboxradio.com between 7 and 9 p.m. on a Sunday evening, and you can experience my smooth sailing show, which is... Well, it doesn't have any screaming in it, really. It's meant to be very relaxing and and uplifting and just, you know, some smooth radio-friendly tunes for a a Sunday evening. That's the plan. Well, we talked of Mick Jagger's flamboyant love life earlier. Mm. And to play us out, a woman with a connection to Jagger in the 1960s. Indeed, yes. And I, I, I love the music of Marianne Faithful, and I particularly love the many ages of Marianne Faithful. I was listening recently to um, me and a friend of mine are doing um, or a friend of mine and 
yeah, me and a friend of mine are just uh, fact checking my own grammar there. Are um are doing um album listening parties. Uh, we got the idea from Tim Burgess during the first lockdown, and we do them on a Sunday evening, and we alternate who picks which which record to listen to at the same time, and we text and catch up, and it's really nice. And we've been working our way through the alphabet, so each picking a letter, and my F pick was Before the Poison by Marianne Faithful, which was her 2004-05 album. And she had an incredible lineup of collaborators on that. So PJ Harvey, Nick Cave, John Bryan, Damon Albarn, incredible people working with her on that. She's very much respected and sort of revered. And even though her voice is, is in a really different place to what it once was when she was doing as Tears Go By and that sort of thing. And that was apparent on this big comeback album, Broken English, from I think which is his taken. But um. I love the use of Marianne's voice on this, particularly with the material in this is very poignant and it sort of suits the way that her voice is a bit cracked and a bit sort of not quite as one would expect it. And it and it's a very moving song and I think that it's she's a great interpreter of song and I think she's often underrated as a great interpreter of song. So this is Marianne Faithful and the Ballad of Lucy Jordan. Oh 
You've been listening to a Parish Council production.